Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers on Serial, the podcast about other podcasts and also about true crime, pop culture, TV, journalism. And this week, that's right, you heard it here, Serial returns with its first new episodes in two and a half years. Set in the Cleveland Justice Center, Sarah Koenig attempts to explore the legal system in a way unseen by many of us. Also, we'll talk about crime podcasting's other reigning queen. Madeline Barron is back with an update to In the Dark Season 2. Joining me to get that done and a whole lot more is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. You feeling excited? I am. Yeah. I am. This is. Uh, it's always good when we have some cereal to talk about. It really is. Also with us is true crime author, journalist, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Good evening, Laura Bricker. Good evening. I would like to add Squirrel Apocalypse Survivor <laughs> to right. my title this week. <laughs> and and so. journalist, Squirrel Apocalypse journalist. Uh, yes. And finally yeah. with us is our resident Doubting Thomas, the novelist behind the acclaimed City Trilogy and our Patreon-exclusive book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello. Welcome back to the Serial Thunderdome, guys. <laughs> Welcome back. So quick programming note for our longtime listeners, our drop date for this season of Serial will be on Mondays. We are going to be covering Serial episode by episode. It's Monday right now. They know. Right. But I just want to let them know it's not a mistake. Oh, okay. All right. And for All right. new listeners of the podcast, welcome. We are going to be covering Serial episode by episode. And since this week there were two episodes, we're mostly going to be talking about Serial, but we are going to be talking about other things in addition to Serial in the coming weeks, including next week we will be talking about the very intriguing CBC podcast, Uncover Escaping Nexium which I now know how to pronounce thanks to the podcast Uncover Escaping Nexium. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it like some uh, uh, some allergy medicine or something like that? No, Nexium? it's a creepy sex cult. Oh, all right, all right. fine. Never mind. <laughs> all right, well, let's just get right into it, shall we? From This American Life in WBEZ Chicago, it's Serial. One courthouse told week by week. I'm Sarah Koenig. Sarah Koenig begins with the premise that if you're looking for insight into the American justice system... Don't look at out-of-the-ordinary cases like they covered in season one. 
If you've listened to Serial before, you probably know that our first season was about a murder case in Baltimore. Ever since that story aired, people have asked me and the people I work with the question, what does this case tell us about the criminal justice system? Fair question. And to answer, I'd usually say, um, because the answer is that cases like that one, they're not what's filling America's courtrooms every day. In episode one, a bar fight walks into the Justice Center. We hear about Anna, a woman beat up by patrons in a bar who accidentally punched a cop while fighting off the crowd. Now, the first I want to start with the idea, something we hear Sarah Koenig say, we heard it in the trailer, we heard it again at the beginning of this episode, that Inan Syed's case was not typical. Um, that idea has been getting some pushback in the true crime podcast community. I believe what she's referring to is the fact that Inan had a trial, two trials, lengthy trials. Mm-hmm. He was represented by a private lawyer. He had a lot of support. But the pushback is basically that his case has a lot of elements of these cases. Uh, you know, judges who have issues, prosecutors who have issues, cops who have issues, false confessions, all the same themes. Kevin, what do you think about the pushback? You know, should Sarah let go of that idea that it's not typical or do you understand what she's trying to say? No, here? I understand what she's trying to say. And I'm sorry, the Adnan case is not typical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say it's not typical. Well, it's not typical like the cases well, sh- you hear about here. Yeah, I guess, sure. I, I guess I guess I should say that. It, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just going to leave it at that. OK. Well, the one thing that I want to get to right away, because I think that we've talked about this on the show, except we haven't really experienced it in so long. Serial does have a secret weapon. And that secret weapon is the writing and the way Sarah Koenig delivers that writing. And I really want to start with talking about the setup of episode one, when Sarah talks about the place we will be embedded all season and gives us a very efficient Mad Men-esque picture of the Justice Center in Cleveland, Ohio. If a person's arrested in Cleveland, they're coming into the Justice Center from the basement. Weary cops escort suspects from the underground parking garage. They get booked, go up a few floors to the jail, Once they get a court date, they're riding up to one of the courtroom floors. The lower floors are for lesser crimes, less hallowed proceedings, misdemeanors, housing court. And the higher floors, starting about halfway up the building, are for felonies. And then she pivots into the very Sarah Koenig-esque part, the character part, which is the scene on the elevator. I like to think that we can all stand so close to one another, with our sensible heels and Timberland boots and American flag lapel pins and fake eyelashes and Axe cologne and orthopedic inserts and teardrop tattoos and to-go coffees. And when the elevator doors open up, spilling us out onto our floor, the fact that no one is bloodied or even in tears, it's a small, pleasing reminder that we're all in this together. Other times, the shoulder-to-shoulder closeness only magnifies the obvious. We're not the same. Not at all. I'd love to hear about what you guys think about the opening of the show, because I characterize it, I think I texted you, Kevin, today, is this the best opening of any podcast you've ever heard? Because that's kind of where I'm at right now in terms of the tightness of it. Uh, Laura, what did you think of the opening of episode one of Serial Season 3? I'm like having a flashback to my former life. (laughs) You know, I really liked how... I felt like I was immediately drawn into the courthouse by the way that she was telling the story. Like you could actually imagine everybody in the elevator because of the way she was describing which floor people got off at, who was talking to who, the person wearing the Axe body spray, um, which I thought was just like, yep, I've been there. Um, And then the girl that had her little speaker who was listening to music kind of just, you know, jamming out. And um, that very like Sarah moment where, you know, she's she's like 
tries to make conversation and it just falls flat. But I, I liked how she sort of unpacked everybody that was going into the courthouse from the attorneys to the defendants to the family to the people that were working there. It really was effective in setting the scene, but making, you know, I'm a very like one of those people when I hear things, I visualize it and I could immediately visualize being in that elevator. Now, Toby, I know I'd love to hear your thoughts about the opening in general. I know you had an, a little bit of an issue with that whole interaction with her and the woman with the Bluetooth speaker. The white people in the elevator give each other looks. I don't want to reciprocate their looks. Instead, I decide it's my duty to break the tension by saying the lamest thing I possibly can. Sometimes I've got a soundtrack for the elevator. Mm-hmm. Not like your music you usually get. So I think the whole sequence is basically it's very efficient. Uh, it's very evocative. It does that thing where it gives you information without you know, making you feel like you're getting information, which is uh, a tricky one to pull off. I just thought that her interaction where she ha- where she says that kind of awkward statement and then nobody uh, says anything and then she's kind of gets self-conscious about it. I don't know if that's the way that she wants to sort of, A, introduce herself to people who are new to Serial. And, and what's that guy's name? The one person who's new to Serial? <laughs> Oh, that's right. <laughs> Judge Gall, maybe. Judge Gall, yeah, exactly. See, I think this kind of like, you know, slightly naive, like slightly, you know, airheaded. I don't think it works as well as it as it. A, I didn't think it worked that great season one. I think she kind of dropped it for season two. But you know, things have just changed. You mm. know, and I think the sort of people who we look to now particularly women uh, reporters on these things like, you know, Amber and uh, Madeline, that's not, you know, they're good, smart reporters who are dogged and coming across this way. I mean, I I guess that's, that's kind of the personality she wants to put forward, but it was a decision that was made to, in like the first two minutes, like this is what you're going to know about me is this, that I said something kind of, like awkward and then I got totally self-conscious about it and isn't it like kind of cute I, I didn't think that was a great choice I actually have a, a counter to that because I think that there's a different reason why they made that choice and I think that that choice first of all just on the open in general the efficiency of it was incredible the scene setting I felt like I was looking at like a Fisher Price set with like all the little floors and the elevators and the people like she made it at both she conveyed the scale of it. She made it seem like a whole city, but also managed to make it like a microcosm, like an adorable, like almost like Wes Anderson-esque little microcosm world, like with the front of the, the building's wall peeled off and you could see all the little people running around inside of it. I just thought that the music was great. The pace of it was great. The writing was super tight. I think she included that to demonstrate the gulf, which I think we're going to be, she's trying to foreshadow a little bit between, I mean, she, she sets it up right away. The There are black people who are not in positions of power and they're defendants and there are white people who are in positions of power. And I think that what that revealed about her is her deliberate attempt to not be a white person in an elevator who doesn't interact with any of the black people in the elevator and how she's not good at it because the gulf is just, it's there and it's an awkward gulf that just exists I thought it revealed something interesting. I thought it was an interesting choice to leave it in. I have mixed feelings about the way it would sound to somebody new in the podcast. I agree. T- to me, it was like the Sarah Koenig that that I know and love. Kevin, what do you think about the opening? 
real quick? I liked it. I mean, I thought, like you said, the efficiency of the writing was uh, was really good. The way they used the elevator sort of as the microcosm of the whole justice system. All these different people coming in and out. The little line about it. And we're all in this together. Uh, <laughs> nope. That part I was kind of like, oh, but no. now you've just become a little too eager. But the <laughs> but the whole rest of it, I thought, was uh, was a good way to start. And it reminds me of what her voice is. Right. And by voice, I don't mean like her speaking voice. I mean the way that she writes and the way that she brings life to what she writes and what she reads. And funny. And funny, right? But she, but that's her voice, right? I mean, that really is. And and there's only one Sarah Koenig, and the, and she's the one who could, who delivers it in that way. And that's kind of to me what serial predominantly is. Uh, please don't be mean to Cleveland. Her source says, and she immediately calls it what? The mistake by the lake, <laughs> which is what a bunch of people called it. But she's not going to do that because she's a classy reporter. Exactly. You know, it's funny. Wink, wink. Yes, it's very funny. All right. Well, one question for you, Kevin. Um, what are your thoughts about her choice here? And I do think again, it was a very deliberate choice to start the series off with a case around a white defendant. We know this is going to be a, a big part of the story is going to be about race. She's basically told yeah. us that already. What do well, you think of that choice? I honestly think that that's not why this is this is the case that she picked. She picked a case where. I mean, I think the demonstration is supposed to be here. You've got a case. We have a defendant who clearly seems to not be the charge that she is facing. Shouldn't be what she's facing because we have sort of this video evidence that is largely exculpatory. Mm. And yet there's still all this peril running through it right up to the end. Mm. And then the idea at the end where, okay, it's just a misdemeanor. It's an M4. And then she lays out why it's not nothing mm. because of the financial costs and the, the, you know, the time costs and all these other things for her. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was interesting that partway through it, she mentioned, like, you know, why, do you, why can you talk to the cops? And she says, because I'm, I'm white. Right. And being white doesn't hurt. Right. And she's I, I understand. Yeah. And yeah. And the defense attorney was very honest about. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think this was supposed to be a, a, a lesson on race, although it's very likely that there will be episodes that are a little more explicit about that. Right. But that is an element of the case. But I don't think that's why she chose. I it. see. I thought they chose it to show the system without the race part introduced into it. So we could just see what it, quote unquote, just looks like yeah maybe if they, they do mean, two similar cases side by side with a white defendant and a black defendant i think that's probably more illustrative of that point yeah i mean if that if that's the reason you know i kind of call bullshit on the idea that the default is white no i don't mean the default what i mean is i don't know i mean i think editorially i would have made a similar choice because to come right out of the gate with a case where you know race was at the center of it i think the larger story they're trying to tell is that this whole thing is totally fucked up Yes. And I and I think that starting with a case with a white person sets that up differently than if you started it mm-hmm. with a black defendant. Listening to this is these are like cases that I have worked on. These are so many cases that I've been involved in so similar to what we're hearing here. And for me, it was more like if you're poor. You're going to get, you know, screwed over. So, you know, I I think that didn't play into it as much for me as just like people that are getting court appointed attorneys and judge is looking at them differently because of that. You know, there's there's lots of cases that show the broken system. And, you know, in some cases, yes, race does come into play. And in some cases, like this first case that we heard, it's just one thing after another mm. that you're like, how how the fuck did they? And, and I know how they charge because I've seen cases like this and it, they're infuriating when you're like, you you have a legitimate, credible witness, the friend giving a blow by blow of what happened. You think the police are listening to her and then they still end up charging this woman. Right. 
And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, it's just, um, especially when you hear the account of the other women that were involved in this whole melee, the detail of the woman who like swept up her hair before she came in and tried to stomp her like a rat or whatever. I'm like, those are the trained professionals here. This poor woman just went to a different bar for a change. Right. Like, forget that. Like, never, well, you know. Yeah, n- not to mention the cop who on the scene says, you didn't do anything wrong. This is no big deal. And then he's being called a victim of assault. I, I want to talk about the first real character we meet in the story, though. Toby, um, we hear we hear initially from this defense attorney named Russ, and then Sarah sort of follows him through the episode. And he's like from Central Casting. He, he He's like an old-timey kind of noir, schlubby guy. As played by John Turturro. Tell <laughs> <laughs> you what, Mike, okay? I've been doing this for 41 years. I'm going to be willing to bet that I can do a better job of researching the law than you can. So let me take that weight off your shoulders. He hangs up. fucking <sighs> believable Yeah, he's a good character. I mean, in some ways, I thought that maybe he was the reason why they made this the first episode yeah. was because you got his perspective as you know somebody who's obviously got an incredible amount of experience there and, and some of his insights about how like moves that he was making would be perceived and how that would affect not just that case but then just the way he was perceived by judges and other people in the court I thought was pretty interesting what kind of struck me and I think it was something that that he struggled with, but was how segmented the whole case was and that it seemed as though, you know, it kept getting handed off from like person to person to person without much communication so that, you know, the cop at the scene says one thing, but then the cops that take her to the headquarters or jail or wherever are, are just like, well, you know, I, don't, I, I can't tell you. I wasn't there, mm. you know. And then she gets passed between attorneys and one attorney is going to like try and really stick it to her. And then the last attorney is like, oh, well, you know, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. Oh, the prosecutors, you mean, right? Uh, yeah, prosecutors. You know, it just kind of seemed like one of those things where there was so little communication between the people on the justice side of this at any step of the process that, you know, it ended up being this long, like stressful thing that ends up in her misdemeanor four or whatever, that if there had been better communication, it mm. seemed like they could have really just like taken care of pretty quickly. But, I, you know, it's one of those things where everybody's busy and it's just not that organized. So that something like this can kind of go from a situation where it really shouldn't have been, you know, sleep it off for a night. And instead it like drags on and, you know, it's, it's highly stressful and she's having to make decisions about things that she really shouldn't have to make decisions about. And then ends up with this thing that's going to be, you know, she's not in jail, but it's going to be a pain in the ass for her for, you know, months. Kevin, what did you think about Russ and the way this this case transpired? I, I liked him as a quote unquote character. Um, I, Central casting, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you certainly you have this. You, <laughs> Literally eating a sandwich while she's talking to him. Like he can't just not eat for some five carrot seconds. Cake. It was carrot, carrot cake, cake day in, in yeah. the judge's office or whatever. I loved it. He's busy. He doesn't even have a secretary. So what is he doing? His own billing? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But it's funny, like right now I'm also watching Better Call Saul. Yeah. And, you know, so you see old Jimmy McGill, who will later become Saul Goodman, you know, kind of work in the hallways. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of that. Not as slick and uh, kitschy. But, uh, yeah, here's a guy who has, you know, been around that courtroom, like you said, longer than some of those prosecutors have been born. So 
you know, he knows how it works on both sides, and he tries to do what he can to, you know, he seems like genuinely interested in doing what's best for his clients, even though he's to the scale at which he's being paid. Yeah, he does more for the ones that are paying him and less for the ones that are assigned to him. It's a volume business. He's very happy to admit that. Uh, So this whole like business transaction that he attempts to go through with first the female prosecutor, where they both have completely different memories of their pretrial conference. Where, mm-hmm. he, where, where he's super insulted and she's super insulted. And then there's the whole thing about just the fact that it's a crime against a peace officer. Someone on our Facebook page said, why can't Sarah say police? I'm like, because in Cleveland, the crime is actually called assault on a peace, peace officer. Because yeah. um, it includes police and sheriffs and <laughs> exactly. you know, things like that. Yeah. Where, you know... You know, there's this whole sort of rigmarole around it where the prosecutor won't drop the charges or lessen the charges because a cop is the victim. She, of course, needs to maintain a good relationship with the cops and then we see on law and order all the time. And it becomes very much like a transaction in the business world. We hear about marks. We hear about right. rooms. We hear about risk assessment. Yeah, I felt like some like and, and Sarah pointed this out. Um, that it's it felt like a lot of the reason why this case wasn't being dismissed was because the victim was a police officer. The, were you putting victim in quotey quotes though, right? Yeah, put quotey quotes. I mean, she I, literally just swung her arm back as she was being attacked. And, right, but the he, he is the reci- he is the one who has been received the contact. Received the contact. Okay, yes. so yeah, no, the offense is against him, and it seems like you know if she had done that and hit somebody else in the bar, mm. um, that yeah, this would have gone away pretty quickly. And so, and the thing that I, I see running through both this episode and the second episode is the theme about professional discretion, right? And how how much of this is left to the discretion of police on charging and arresting and yep. the discretion of prosecutors on proceeding and dropping a case and on judges about the disposition of the case and, and what's going to happen to the defendant post-conviction. Because the cops, you're right, on the scene, they, they could have just let her go. She talks about that. Yeah, they could have walked her out. Yeah, They let the other woman, who one who attacked her, just left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no big deal. Yeah, and it may have been right to arrest her. They didn't charge the guy who, by the way, yeah, sexually say, assaulted her. Yeah. What yeah. about the ass slapper? Like, what happened to him? Yeah. You know? He stood, oh, know he stood him. around in his red he, jacket. He left. Didn't he, he leave? He wouldn't do that. I, yeah. Something like that. I, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's one element of this that's totally ignored, is that, like, in other situations, you could call that very easily, make a yeah. claim that that is a sexual assault. Yeah. But just to close the idea on that question that you had, which is that I think that the prosecutor probably feels like she cannot do anything that would overtly offend or to diminish the uh, the effect on a cop. Right. That she doesn't want to cross the cop because she needs the cop for other things. And it's just like in any other business where you have a client that you work with or some other colleague that you may cut them a break of some some kind that you wouldn't cut for a cut a break for 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 a, a different person. Right. But that's. I'm not saying that's, that's right or wrong. I I, I, I believe that it's wrong the way that <laughs> systems work with right. people right. is that they shouldn't make that kind of calculation, but they in, do. People in power can, people without power can't. That's kind of the whole point. I mean, it's funny because on the one hand, that prosecutor, like, she wasn't right. But at the same time, I was like, good for you for standing up to that older guy who, like, don't, you don't let him push you around. <laughs> and that's another way that, like, the business part of it comes in. You know, she's been, she overtly said, I am a young female lawyer and the older guys in this building try to push me around. And that's not cool. And you know what? It isn't. Doesn't mean what she's doing is right. You know, tell mm-hmm. me what you're going to say. Uh, I was just going to say, I, I think that that relationship that Kevin was describing is extremely problematic. 
the idea that police, they're placed above, you know, citizens mm. in the court system. Yep. And Kevin's exactly right. It's like, it's the way that it's systems, you know, it's, it's you know, you're going to be constantly working with these cops, you know, defendants or victims or whatever, you're going to kind of come and go. It kind of reminds me of, it's like that same sort of relationship back when my husband used to work on the ambulance in a, you know, somewhat different area. And it was like, don't piss off the nurses in the ER when you work on the ambulance, because, you know, they would have these little tit for tats back and forth. And um, you needed those people on your side when you went in if they were having little squabbles. So it was this sort of symbiotic relationship. Um, Obviously, they were still going to treat people, but it was like that same sort of back and forth because they were all part of the same system. Right. Absolutely. And I I agree with Toby. I want to underscore something that Toby said about the penalties for cops being involved as victims of crimes are so disproportionate. Yeah. I I don't think anybody disagrees that it's important that police be protected from Mm -hmm. violence. However, the idea that in this cam footage where it's very clear that she hit him by accident. Mm. And didn't injure him. Yeah, didn't injure him. And at the scene, he said, I'm not going to press charges. No big deal. And that this case is still being brought to like trial, potentially. I mean, it's insane. And it's only because he was a cop. I mean, the, the prosecutor said that. It's only because. No, he was a Sarah cop. said that. But the prosecutor but, I mean, I'm not saying it. it's not true. She I'm, underscored it. She uh-huh. said it's, you know, when you have cops, like you can't accept. I mean, she underscored that for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is also sort of the process in general. So, you know, when I was involved in cases, you know, the further out that you get a case and you start investigating it and, you know, they have ongoing status conferences where the attorney will try to, you know, work out a plea deal. And same thing as we heard in this case. No, we're not doing it. No, we're not doing it. We're still doing this. We're bringing it forward. This is, you know, the closer you get to trial, the more likely you are to see a sort of plea deal because they're going to try to, you know, uh, what other cases are coming up. They're trying to keep things moving forward, triaging different cases, looking at which cases are stronger. And by that point, you know, the defense has done some more investigation. They maybe have more witnesses, more information that would come out at trial that would make the case stronger or show that, you know, in a lot of these cases, they throw a bunch of charges on somebody. Not all of them are going to stick once you do the investigation. But I think that's just part of that process that there's always that back and forth. Yeah. And there's always that, no, we're not doing this. No, we're not. And, and it doesn't matter if it's a police officer or another person. And, you know, then sometimes it's always that last minute you can go on the day of trial and boom, suddenly they're like, no, we don't want to deal with this. You get a deal. Also, too, we hear in this episode and in the next episode that if you as a defendant or even a defense attorney, have a desire to fight for your innocence, to claim to, to try to be exonerated, you get penalized. You mm-hmm. are penalized. The, the defense We're attorney- We're taking it to court's time. Well, the defense attorney was saying, like, he spends political capital because he wants to take something to trial. Like, he's like, now he's regretting it because he's spending cap. It's like, I'm sorry. I mean, you are allowed to do that in this country, sort of what the justice system is built on, innocent until proven guilty. And yet, of course, we hear that they try to plead everything down to a misdemeanor because in this county, a little naivete there, I think it's everywhere, not just this county, innocence is a misdemeanor. And the cost that actually comes with misdemeanor is really, really great. Toby, what do you think of this whole concept here that in the legal system between prosecutors, defense attorneys and judges... Something being pled down to a misdemeanor is, for them, the same as saying that somebody is innocent or close to it. Yeah. I mean, I almost took it to be, when you're in that position, if you're innocent, the best you can really hope for is a misdemeanor. Yeah. Like, that's kind of your your best case scenario. 
you know, it seems like a lot of the stuff that we heard about in the first two episodes is about trying to keep the system as sort of streamlined and, and efficient as possible. And that means having the fewest number of trials as possible, which means there's tremendous pressure, you know, to cut these plea deals, which puts you in a tough bind if you're actually innocent, yeah. you know, because then you're, you're starting with this disadvantage of being seen as, you know, potentially wasting the court's time. I can understand from like a big systems perspective where it's like, okay, we have X number of cases and we have X number of judges. We can only really do so many cases a year. So we've got to plea out a hell of a lot of them. But the reality is on kind of a case by case basis, if that's your case and you're innocent and you're, you're, your lawyer is basically like, well, we'll just, you know, get a misdemeanor four and, and, and that's not too bad. It's like, what the hell? Yeah. You know? So I know this is something that's been in the news and it's an issue a lot of states states grapple with this idea of fees. And in New Hampshire, I know that even if you're acquitted, you can also be charged fees, which is another Well, a lot issue. of states, that's the issue. Yes. And that people who are acquitted or they've paid their fine, they end up getting reincarcerated because they can't pay the fees the on top of the fees. fees. Yeah. Yeah. And so- that isn't, at least at this point in the series, that it hasn't happened to Anna. But, I mean, it really could. It could, yeah. It, it, it just shows sort of the cost of this whole like misdemeanor economy. Laura, I bet you a lot of the defendants you worked with ended up in situations similar to this, right? Yeah, in terms of, you know, having court fines and they weren't able to pay them because they were indigent and then they're getting sent to jail because of that. And, you know, the attorneys would fight that and it just wasn't fair. Things have changed since then. It's been, you know, an issue that's getting more attention, but uh, it's just ridiculous. All right. Well, let's do what we used to do, shall we? We're covering serial episode by episode. And, you know, I don't think we'd be covering it if we didn't agree, generally speaking, that it was a thumbs up. Thumb series? No. <laughs> I just like to know what you guys think. Uh, first episode of Serial Season 3. You want to just do what we used to do and give it a quick letter grade yep. and uh, explain why you're assigning it the grade you are. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? You know what? I'm going with B+, but that's because it's the first episode and I don't know where, I mean, I know where it's going, but I don't want to come out of the gate too excited and be disappointed. So I'm going to say B+, very good. Definitely, as somebody worked in the criminal justice system, very spot on in terms of the way things are there. Be curious to see how it educates people who maybe aren't as familiar with the system. Toby, what about you? Letter grade for the first episode of Serial Season 3? You know, Rebecca, I had a letter grade in mind. And then you brought up that thing about you thought that maybe... Uh, this case was brought up to sort of show the the system with sort of race not being a factor in it. The more I thought about that as we were kind of talking, like the sense I got from this was that the majority of cases deal with African-Americans. Mm. And the idea that if you're going to just show an example of a case and how it works regardless of race, that in fact, it probably makes more sense to show a case with an African-American, because that's really the baseline, right? If that's the majority of cases, in that what we should be looking at is that, and then looking at white defendants, uh, when they are treated differently, as seeing that as being more of a leniency rather than a harshness towards black defendants. Does that make sense? But that was just a theory, Toby. That's not definitely what they did. <laughs> 
Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> in that case, I'll just go back to giving it a B plus and move on. <laughs> I get what you're saying, though. Um, I'm going to actually start high. I'm going to start with a solid A for this episode. I really enjoyed it. I only had a couple minor quibbles, and I'm just going to say one of them now, and Kevin, and you're going to roll your eyes at me. I'm all ready to... Sarah Koenig only provides physical descriptions and dress of women characters, and that makes me crazy. I think it's really sexist. We know what the defendant was wearing in court. We know that the prosecutor had a big, wide smile. We never freaking hear for a second what Russ looked like. and He's the character I actually want to know what he looked like. He probably looks a little sloppy uh, is what I'm guessing. It's just sort of a thoughtless thing that I think reporters and storytellers do. They assume that we want to know what women look like, but they don't think we care what men look like. And tiny little sexist quibble on my part but otherwise for me very solid a in no small part because of the brilliant what i thought was a brilliant opening episode kevin what about you letter grade yeah if this were a homework assignment turned into professor flynn i'd be marking it an a mm-hmm. um it doesn't mean that uh, i think it's the greatest podcast episode ever done that's not what i mean by an a i just you i know, mean that would be an a plus plus yeah i <laughs> 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 I just don't see much to mark off. Um, it's not a 100, but it's it's not a B plus to me. It's it's a it's an A grade for a, you know a very good podcast. Just like you give an A grade for a very good meal. Just like that, yes. And that's why we love Blue Apron. It is absolutely. Blue Apron is the best way to make dinner in as little as 30 minutes with quick and easy recipe options. <laughs> Perfectly portioned ingredients delivered right to your door. Imagine if someone has never listened to this podcast before and they're only listening as we're talking about cereal and they hear your ad transition and they're like, what the F was that? (laughs) Why did he all of a sudden start talking about Blue Apron? (laughs) All right, keep going. Keep talking about Blue Apron. Why? Because we love Blue Apron. We do. We just ate a Blue Apron 10 minutes ago. You know, somebody said, hey, you know, Blue Apron would like to, to sponsor your podcast. Would you like a free meal? And I'm like, fool! We've been eating three meals of Blue Apron every week for years. Years. We are early adopters. We know more about Blue Apron than you do. That's right. Toby, you had some Blue Apron, though. Tell me, uh, what did you think? When I'm in the kitchen, I'm sort of like a C, C-plus kind of cook. But we did get Blue Apron delivered, and I actually made two meals at the same time, Mm. and they were awesome. Wow. It's like he's running a restaurant back there. Uh, Yeah, stuff was flying all over the place. But... It's easy enough in that they've got everything basically measured out for you. And so I actually had two things going. I had chicken fingers and sort of potato wedge type things going. And then I also had like a glazed chicken. Mm-hmm. It was really, really good. Like the, the, actually the chicken tenders were like the best chicken tenders I've ever had. Mm. So yeah, it was, it was awesome. And uh, this month, you can take advantage of some of their exciting partnerships Blue Apron has, uh, things inspired by Bob's Burgers. Nice. Remember the cartoon? I do. All these really kind of interesting burgers and Whole30 approved recipes. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free at blueapron.com slash crime writers. The app is writers. great, too. You can control everything. <laughs> About your uh, your upcoming recipes. I love recipes. the app. You can skip meals. You can skip everything. You can go from two Add person more. to four person. It's just it's it's everything that you would want. It's blueapron.com slash crime writers to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. What else you got, Kevin? Well, the Fab Fit Fun Fall Box is here. Yay! And by here, mm-hmm. I mean right here. Literally here. I've got the uh, the Fab Fit Fun Box. Let's I already open opened mine, so I hope you're just going to hand me everything in yours so I can have two of you. Let's thing. see here. All right, this is uh, fall 2013. This is the box that uh, comes when uh, you have your subscription. Do you have your Vince Camuto tote in there? 
That was quite a haul. That was Delicious. a really nice tote. You got Super uh, nice. some uh, wireless Bluetooth earbuds. Amazing. Some nice towels. Yep. Uh, this is bubble the mask. Glam Go. Yep. Yeah, Glam Glow bubble sheet. Matt, okay, that's great. You can tell I used all these things. Luna uh, Rika bar. Yeah, a little ceramic teapot in no, there. It's a teapot. To make your loose tea. And these are all, and, and what is this, the the original beauty blender? Oh, a little bit. Hand me that. I want that. The makeup sponge? Give okay, me. you can have that <laughs> as well. And they're all like full size stuff. These aren't like little teeny things there's a, there's that you a get whole, like, body at the checkout. At the, yeah. Laura, you also got the Fab, we all got a Fab Fit Fun box, but what was your favorite thing, Laura, that you got? I don't know if I have a favorite thing. I have to tell you, when I get the box, it's kind of a little bit like Christmas because it comes, it's so nicely packaged, and you, you're like, ooh, it's a great surprise to see everything that they managed to put in this box. It's like all these, like you open it up and there's all these little surprises stuffed in. You're like, oh, here's another fun little thing. It's so a I was, goddamn box. I'm picking this it up. It is. I mean, and this one, I was like, wow. You know, so there was like, I actually, it arrived, I, I work from home. It arrived around lunchtime. I was like really busy. And there was this Luna bar that was stuffed with some sort of maybe cashew or almond butter. Caramel. I don't know, some yeah, sort yeah. of nut butter inside. It was very delicious. Um, there was some eye cream, which I'm very excited to try because I've, I've been having like crazy insomnia, so I'm not looking so hot around my eyes, so I'm going to give that a try. I already lost my Bluetooth um, headphones to oh, no. the <laughs> almost teenager in my house yep. who made off with them. Oh. It's just kind of fun when you get the box to totally. be like, ooh, what's, what's in the box this time? Totally fun. It's not all makeup and cosmetics, but there's plenty of makeup and cosmetics, other stuff in there, household stuff. I love it. It's super fun. The FabFitFun Fall Box is in limited supply, and these boxes always sell out. So use our code CRIME, CRIME. to get $10 off of your first box. You go to fabfitfun.com to sign up and you'll start getting the box for a life well lived. You use promo code CRIME. Crime. Get $10 off your first box. That's a $200 value. Yeah. Uh, that At you least. get for all. Yeah, and it's only $39.99. Go to fabfitfun.com. Use code CRIME for $10 off your first FabFitFun box. Want to share with our audience my rebranding idea for FabFitFun? They should just call it Fun, Fun, Fun. Fun, Fun, Fun. <laughs> I think fun. Brian Wilson already owns that, so. <laughs> All right, moving on. There was a surprise addition to our podcast feeds this week from one of the greatest series of all time. We're not talking about cereal, though we will return to our cereal season three discussion in just a couple of minutes. I just want to talk briefly about the In the Dark bonus episode that came out this week with an update on all that's been happening in the Curtis Flowers case and in his family's life since they finished season two. Let's just listen to a quick clip of the bonus episode. The funeral for Lola Flowers was held in Winona on a Saturday morning. Friends and family packed into Mount Vernon Missionary Baptist Church. Some people came from as far away as Alabama, Texas, and Illinois. It was so many people that the church ran out of seats, and people had to stand in the back. More and more people arrived until the church was so full, it couldn't hold anyone else. One person who wasn't there was Lola's son, Curtis. Curtis wanted to be there. He'd asked the court for permission to attend, but the DA, Doug Evans, opposed that request. The judge in charge of deciding whether to grant it was Judge Joey Loper, the same judge who had presided over two of Curtis's trials. Judge Loper never responded to Curtis's request. And so while the funeral went on, Curtis remained in his cell at Parchman Prison. So we knew that Curtis's mom had passed away. Yeah. We read that in the news. We talked about it in this podcast before we hear it in this episode. Madeline's final conversation with her, she had traveled down to Mississippi again with her team to sort of follow up with everyone, which I think is really extraordinary. A lot of reporters who do stories 
once they're finished, they just never go back again and talk to the people ever yeah. again. Kevin, I would just love your thoughts in general on this bonus episode. I'm kind of going to go around the horn and just get impressions. It was really good. I mean, some of the information there is stuff that w- we know about because, uh, you know, there's stuff that's been happening in the news outside of the uh, the podcast, and we've been following that. But it was good to kind of get it all into one spot. Uh, I thought that the funeral audio was really powerful. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought the preacher uh, who gave the eulogy, you know, I think he did a great job and, and uh, really stirred a lot of passion. And I think it was really interesting about the way that— um, you know, you can call it white Winona mm. feels about what's happening in the case. Let's talk about that white Winona reaction to uh, Jeffrey Armstrong's confirmed story about finding a gun that could have been the murder weapon and how white Winona has turned on him. Laura, thoughts about that and thoughts about this update episode? Uh, OK, yeah. So I have had a lot of people reach out this week wanting to know how my rage walking was going, <laughs> wanting to know if I had like seized up when I heard this. So I will set the scene for you. This dropped on Tuesday. Um, That was when we here in New Hampshire got the remnants of Hurricane Florence. So I was walking on the indoor track at the gym listening to this. And there was some guy, I don't know what the hell he was doing on the track, but he was doing this like stupid, like walking, skipping, sidestepping. I don't even know what he was doing. And he kept getting in my way. I was like, you need to get out of my way because I am pissed off listening to this. And he was like, do to do. And I'm like, ah, stay in your lane. So anyway, so I was raging about that as I was listening to this. But I could not just believe how horribly that poor man was treated. Absolutely just horrific. So that that was horrible. And it, But it's just discouraging that after all the information that Madeline and her team brought out, that to some degree, it's still sort of status quo. And Doug Evans' attitude, of course, is, I don't know what they're looking at, but that's not true. And that's it. Oh, I hate him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's going to be a ringtone for Laura Bricker. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be, oh, I hate him. <laughs> Toby, thoughts about this update episode of In the Dark? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody kind of, you know, lives up or down to what you'd expect them to be doing. You know, I kind of stick by what I thought before, which is that it's 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 basically a way of of maintaining white supremacy mm. in this area. Yep. I, I think that's what happens with uh, with that guy who found the gun and, and the reaction to that. That's what people are pissed about. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not it's not like a rational like, well, maybe that guy's innocent. Maybe you should get out of jail. It's like, why are you helping? That black eye. I'm really glad that this episode came out this week. I think it was basically perfect, exactly what an update episode should be. We get to hear what's been happening. A lot of people don't follow the blow by blow news on Twitter mm-hmm. and so forth through uh, different forms of media. So to get this update, it was tightly written. It was well done. It didn't linger too long on any particular point. The Jeffrey Armstrong stuff was shocking to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these people are so racist that they can't even tolerate a white person who isn't even saying anything overtly woke. He just literally found a piece of evidence and is talking about it. Potential piece of evidence. You <sighs> it's, know? it's insane. And it's, yeah. Okay. Imagine being so racist that you then hate the white person who looks and talks just like you, who you probably were like good old boys with five minutes ago, just because he tells a story about something actually real that happened to him where he actually found a thing. Yeah. That's how racist you are. It's like racism by proxy. It's like racism on a whole new level. It's crazy. 
Anyway, I think the episode was great. I think it's great that it dropped this week because it is interesting to compare and contrast the reporting styles of that podcast with Serial. All right, well, let's move back to our old friend, shall we? We're going to talk now about Serial Episode 2 of Season 3. You've got some galls. Today's episode, we're going to spend it all in one place, in Judge Gall's courtroom. And we chose his room, we as our producer Emmanuel Jochi and I, because frankly, it's sometimes thrilling in there. The shock factor alone is worth the price of admission. But also because his room, more than any we saw, laid bare this prodigious power that judges hold and the many ways they can wield that power to try to get what they want. We are now introduced to Sarah's producer and co-reporter, Emmanuel Jochi, in this episode. And hang on to your hats, America. Emmanuel went to high school and college in Ohio, but he sounds like an Englishman. Long story. Here's Emmanuel. It's been about five months off and on watching cases in Judge Gould's courtroom. We care more, I think, on Serial about other voices coming into the story than we do on other shows we hear. Like, we don't talk about it in the dark. We don't say, like, what do you think of Reporter Parker? You know, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> um, but we care a lot because this is Sarah Koenig's storytelling style. She is the person we associate with Serial. So first impressions of Emmanuel Jochi. Kevin, I'm start with you. What do you think? Yeah, I, I'm glad that Sarah said, yeah, America, he actually grew up in Ohio. <laughs> he didn't grow up in, I don't know, London or South Africa. I don't know. It's just a, it's an unusual accent. Um, uh, it's kind of like, you know, when you go to see Paul McCartney in Wings and he's like, and now here's a song that Linda's going to do. You know, it's like, <laughs> that isn't what I really was paying for. Hmm. Um, but he's good. No, yeah, it's free. But, okay. But I'll just say he, he, he's good. He obviously, you know, was a major collaborator with Sarah on, and the whole team, because yep. it's a big team on, on getting this done. So he, he does deserve some time, especially if he's been doing some, you know, some of the reporting himself. But I, it is, a, it was like, oh, okay. You know, I think it just takes a little getting used to. He's not, he's not taking over right. at all. It's, it's, you can still tell Sarah's the narrator riding the boat. She's, she's tossing a little bit to him. But I, it's different. I did appreciate that. I mean, I think we're probably going to hear more from him later. Yeah. I did appreciate that he even framed his parts with her. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was obviously deliberate. Like, you don't want people to be like, this isn't a Sarah part, so let's move on. But, Laura, I know you were, uh, you really want to know the backstory behind his accent, don't you? I know you. I want to know. Why does he have the English accent? My friend Meg also sent me a message this afternoon. She said he's her favorite part so far. She loves guys with British accents. We, we, we want to know. Where, what's, what's the story? English. It is. He's not British. And it, well, no, mate. He obviously spent some time there. I don't know. She said it's a long story, and well, then we need she carried a second. On, so we need serial I, season four about his damn. He accent. must have spent. People some are time googling there. him all over the world this weekend. So <laughs> trying to find out <laughs> what the hell is that guy. <laughs> well, before we get into sort of the the darker uh, themes of this episode, this episode is darker, I think, than episode one. Um, I just want to talk briefly about the use of music in the season of Serial. They have been doing some light motifs with music in Serial. There's the basic theme we heard in season one that had a variation of it on it for season two. New variation on season three. But they're also using new elements of music this season. And I just think it's really beautifully mixed. And I just want to drop like a little sample of that. Judge Gall is one of the most transparent judges in the building. His worldview seemed woven into every proceeding. He liked the old days better when Cleveland was better, and America was better, when people were more respectful, more resilient, less whiny. Now we're dealing with a generation raised on ADHD medication, which did who knows what to their brain chemistry, and these millennials, nourished on participation trophies, think they're owed something from the rest of us. All of this, this whole building, the 13,000 felony cases moving through the criminal court each year, 
Judge Gall traces it to a frightful shortage of personal responsibility. Kevin, this show is beautifully mixed, right? Like The music is a, it's a different choice this year, and yeah. I do like it. And I'm glad you brought that up because I did make a note. Whenever you use music in audio, you're trying to achieve an effect. You're trying to drive something emotional, whether it's fear or excitement or this is supposed to be sad. Because in film, you can do it a lot of different ways, but you don't have a lot of choices with audio. So that's why it's always, it's always a very critical choice. And it should be taken as such. Easy and I to think, do badly. Easy to do badly. <laughs> and I think there are some times with some of this, you know, this instrumental music, some of it's kind of a little bit of a march, yeah. you know, kind of like something's marching along. It's primar- primarily up-tempo mm-hmm. and s- major chords. It doesn't sound like it's supposed to be like this very heavy, you know, it's not the soundtrack to In the Dark. Mm. Um and I think that's uh, it's it. I don't think it makes light of the topic, but I think it brings some energy to it, which is I think what you're going to need for um, you know for a series like this. And well, just I just want to talk about when I talk about the mixing too. Like even this team's like their perfection around levels is just it's something worth noting. I mean, it is the one of the things that makes the serial podcast stand apart. The Listening to the CBC podcast and we're talking about next week, there's a lot to love about it. It's very different. It's, you know, very straightforward. And there are times where just like the music is a little bit tiny bit too loud. And I hear that on shows that I mix. And as I hear my own mix backs and I'm like, I'm really picky about this stuff, but I could have taken that down a little bit. There's never anything like there's never any the music. The stitching is very well. There's never any cho- yeah. there are any yep. choices in here that take you out of it ever. That's what people are saying on Twitter all the time. <laughs> No, just the, the levels are mixed really just the well. Just nerds like me. Yeah, okay. All right, we'll move on. Sorry, because no one else <laughs> in this conversation cares about that. Toby Ball, um, let's just get right to it. Judge Gall, he is the personification of everything that's wrong with America. Agree or disagree, Toby Ball? <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> uh, Not to be hyperbolic. You agree, though? Uh, well, I don't know if every single thing, <laughs> but <laughs> like the vast majority, sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think he's the product of the worst instincts of 230 years of American history or 240 years of American history has sort of culminated in his attitude in the courtroom. Mm. Like I think I said in, in, in the note I sent you, it's kind of hard to know where to start with him. So you can just start with like the first impression you get of him, which is that he like thinks he's using African-American slang to like better relate to the people in his courtroom. He'll often call black defendants brother and dude, as in... You got a bit of an attitude going here, brother. Emmanuel told me that in eight months of watching his courtroom, the only black person he didn't hear Judge Gall call brother or dude was Emmanuel. He uses terms like baby's mama and baby's daddy, which impossible for a white guy to do without making the whole room cringe. Thinks he understands the African-American people in the court better than they understand themselves. Mm. So he's going to like let them know how to live their lives. I mean, it's really, it's quite something. Yeah, he, I think, sees himself as some sort of weird savior master complex, which I think comes up later in the episode. There's a lot that's disturbing there, a lot. It, It seems like the same basic attitude that like drives like colonialism or like anything where Europeans or Americans show up and tell people how to live their lives. Mm. That's kind of what he's doing in his courtroom is trying to enforce what he considers to be, you know, the correct moral code. And because he has 
the weight of the law behind them, he can really coerce people into doing these things that are not in any way something that's decided in our country. It's just his personal feeling about certain things. And, and a lot of times it's actually like totally counter to, I, I think, what sort of the accepted understanding about how people can live their lives in our country is. You mean he's acting in a way that's blatantly unconstitutional in his own courtroom? Is that what you're trying to say? Because he is. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> Don't have any more babies or you're going to jail. Laura, what are your thoughts about Judge Gall? So I tried to be fair to Judge Gall, even though he just comes across, because I was like listening to this and I'm like, you have got to, I mean, I've been in front of judges who have not been nice to defendants and, and I've seen people treated poorly, but listening to this, like if you have a child out of wedlock, you're going to violate probation, making these little flip comments like, well, his black life didn't matter to you. And then to that woman, well, you're pregnant now. That's even better. Like just, I'm listening to this and I'm like, God, this, how is this guy getting away with this? And I'm like, okay, let's try to be fair. You know, I think in his twisted mind he thinks he's helping but he's he's just clearly not he's so far out of bounds I mean it was like it's like you had that teacher in high school that was like the crazy teacher that was like out of the box and they're like well his methods might work or he's you know like clearly it's not working here unfortunately it's kind of a sad sign of the times that somebody like this can be this far out of bounds and nothing happens and and you hear that part of the reason that nothing happens is because for all of his bluster and all of these insane things that he says he's actually a pretty lenient sentencer mm. compared to some of the other judges you know at one point they had the description of the defense attorney with his hand on the client's back like just ride it out just don't say anything get the racist riot act you know just go through it because his sentencing is going to be better than the person next door who's going to be, you know, brought up by the ACLU because they're ordering you to vote, um, you know. <laughs> Not who to vote for. <laughs> but so I was, I was, you know, listening to this whole thing with Judge Gall and I was kind of flipping back and forth. I was like, this guy's horrible. Like, no, but you know what? Maybe in his own twisted way, he's, he's trying to help. And then we had the case at the end where I like blew my stack. Mm. I mean, there have been judges that I've been before and I've listened to and I've been mortified. Um, this was a whole nother level. When I'm listening to it at first with, with you know, Judge Gall, I'm like, oh, wow, this guy is, again, way out there. He's going to get in so much trouble. <laughs> and then a little bit farther into it, I'm like, oh, okay, I don't like how he's doing it, but I'm, I'm kind of understanding he's not a hanging judge. He thinks that, okay, uh, I'm, you know, part of this whole wheel of society and a lot of, you know, people who are going the wrong way come to me, I've got a chance and, and to straighten them out and I'll read them the riot act. And then 20 minutes later, I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking 20 minutes ago? Right. This guy I was like, I, I want, like, Lord, I wanted to be fair to him. And I, I think that he, he honestly, I believe in his mind, he believes that he is doing the best that he can by these people. Like he says, he feels like he knows them better these than people. they know them. That's the thing. The way you characterized them is the way he characterizes them. These people, I'm not saying you feel yeah. that way. They're all the same to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're all the same. Yeah, perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> well, I'm just going to say perhaps there are other ones that he's, you know, hey, brother. You're like, really? You're going to go there? <laughs> Jesus, Judge. Um, yeah, I mean, part of it, I think that there's part of his philosophy about the justice system that's not completely wrong about the way that defendants, you know, their lives are on a bad track and there's a cycle of 
unfortunate behavior and disadvantages and whatnot, and eventually they're going to wind up in somebody's courtroom. And he can either say, you're going away for 20 years, or he can yell at them and try to get them be like, you know, the father figure and like, you know, you shouldn't do this and you should get a job and you really shouldn't be having more babies. And I'm not really supposed to say that, but I'm going to. But uh, this he's like he's I thought the case with Vivian. It's really not redeeming. It, yeah. The case of Vivian was so disturbing. to Yeah, me. she should have gone to drug court because he really wanted. I mean, to me, it was so clear. He wants to keep her under his thumb. Absolutely. It's like that he, was enlightening. Yeah, it was so enlightening because here she is. She's ill. I mean, she's clearly ill. She has an addiction. She's a person who's obviously willing to do what she can do to make her life better. Uh-huh. It's harder for her because she's suffering from an illness and because she's poor. And there are other options for her that have worked for other people. And he wants to keep her under his damn thumb. He would rather have her come back over and over and over again, send her for these short prison sentences, have her come back, yell at her some more. What is she going to AA now 18 times a week? Because that's preferable to him to to be able to have that contact with her and to be the one to to like do that to her, then send her to a, a court that actually could help her. Mm-hmm. It's insane. And that really laid the groundwork for the next case that we hear of with him, which is the defendant, Rashawn Ellis, who, again, is in this situation where he's under the judge's thumb. He's literally just trying to fight for his own acquittal. He gets in trouble for trying to fight for his acquittal. The judge is screaming at him for what, wasting his time, for not having the sense to take a plea when he's saying he's not guilty. Mm-hmm. And the way he gets out of it is by writing this ridiculous, sycophantic letter, which the judge, of course, calls the criminal equivalent of the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> that guy, uh, Rashawn, was pretty savvy because then when Sarah went and talked to him, he said something along the lines of, yeah, he he wrote the letter basically because he understood how the judge was. I th- what do you call him? The king. He's like the king up there. Yeah, which was ridiculous. Yeah, but uh, you know, wrong. he used it to. Yeah, he was right. No, he was right. He called him a raging slave master. That's what he called him. That's what Sarah says he right. said to her, and that was exactly the impression I got. I got of this guy from the beginning. But I will say, you know, one of the issues that I did relate to is this families getting stuck in the cycle of the criminal justice system and the children entering it. And one of the stories I remember writing as a reporter when I was, you know, a long time ago, but it was when the first time heroin came into New Hampshire, um, probably in like the early 2000s, there were a lot of stories, there were a lot of break-ins. Um, and I ended up writing a story about this guy who went to jail for committing a bunch of little break-ins in houses in my town. And the backstory was, he was like the fourth generation of addicts in his family, and like him and his mother and his grandfather and uncle would all sit around shooting up together. So mm. there is some truth to, to that whole issue that Judge Gall was talking about, but the way that he handled it was totally not the is right way to Is that his job? Is that his job, though? Yeah. His job is to look at the charges, look at the evidence, look, follow the procedure, and run the courtroom. His yeah. job is not to tell you what kind of parent you should be or whether you should be a parent or whether that other judge, there's that devastating scene where we hear the other judge characterizing one of the defendants and giving him a hard time because he's up there completely alone. You're standing here all alone. There's no Lewis, there's no Marquis, and even your father doesn't want to stand here with you. Does this tell you something? Do you have any thoughts about this in your head? 
What are they? Share them with me. I've been going down the wrong path. So these judges are, they're appointing themselves the morality police. The moral judge, as well as the legal judge. Yeah, no, I don't think, I, I don't think it's right that they're appointing themselves like that. But I can see how, you know, when you are in that system day in and day out, you do get a little bit jaded after a certain period of time. And I don't know what he was like before this. Um, I, you know, he sounds like he's a pretty narcissistic individual. But when you do see things like over and over again, at some point, it gets pretty depressing. He sounds kind of judgy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's that. Um, I was thinking about uh, Flinttown. Yeah. During part of this in that the different role that the African-American cops and the white cops saw of sort of their policing in that community. And, and there's that scene towards the end where an African-American cops, like I could, you know, I can't remember, like repossess half these cars or he, he makes some comment like that. He said, but what, what impact would that have on the community? So Gall's father was a politician in Cleveland and she does make a, a, a statement about how, you know, a lot of the judges, you know, fathers were judges. So these are these are sort of like the Cleveland elite. When you have people who are not a part of the community in which they are trying to sort of apply their ideas about what should happen in these communities. Mm-hmm. I think that that that's problematic, and mm. I think it kind of plays out in this courtroom in that he's like really like you can't procreate, right? You have to have a job, and it's not only that I don't think you should; it's that I'm going to put you in jail if you do. Right? Like I'm going to criminalize you having a baby. As you um, as you wrote in your note to me today, welcome to the plantation, right? Yeah. So, what does this tell us about the system then? Uh, Laura, what do you think it tells us, especially when we end the episode with the case of Carlton Hurd, which I know infuriated you uh, coerced into pleading guilty overturned yeah. acquitted and then uh, someone should do something about this judge and yet everyone all the other judges say the other lawyers say someone should do something and as Sarah points out these are someones who are saying that where's Dr. Henderson for crying out loud like <laughs> oh my god the people that were in Dr. Death that had to fight and fight with the medical board yeah I mean it was just listening to that case was absolutely infuriating because it's like Here's this person who's basically pressured into pleading guilty, and it, which is totally against any sort of ethical. It's just so far out of bounds. But the fact that all of this happens, and she ends up talking to a different judge, the one Judge Russo, who ended up taking over the case, who basically says, "Yeah, it's wrong," but not going to do anything about it. That's so, right. It's like the status quo of the criminal justice system is so difficult to go up against, Mm. especially even when you know it's wrong, even when you're in the system, even when you're in a position of power like this guy who was, I think, wasn't he like the chief judge in that courthouse? Mm. You know, he was in a position where he was actually in the hierarchy of the little floors going up the elevator. He was at the top. Yeah. So... It's just it's frustrating to listen to. But Kevin, of course, if you're like the cousin or nephew or sister's niece's brother of somebody in the system, you're going to be fine, right? Because that's how it is here. Yeah, I think that's how they ended. It was episode one, I think, where they asked about Anna's (laughs) last name. Is she related to that judge? So and so. Um, Yeah. I mean, again, it's there's an awful lot about discretion and the way it is improperly applied mm. in the justice system. Because we try to say that people, sh- you know, should use their 
for example, we, we were saying this all throughout in the dark, to use some prosecutorial discretion, uh, you know, regarding Curtis Flowers, that it doesn't like your job here is to not get a conviction, but to serve justice. And sometimes that means we're not proceeding on this case for reasons X, Y, or Z. And it just seems that like in serial, every time in all these incidences that we see somebody come to a juncture where they could use their own judgment to move a case left or right or forwards or backwards. And it seems like what we think the direction it should go, they always seem to go in the opposite direction. Right. And I think it's part of the human failings that we have that, you know, a prosecutor will I'm not going to, you know, drop the case because it's a cop and I got, you know, I can't do anything wrong with cops. And, you know, the judge, well, if it's actually somebody related to another judge, then I'd probably just go back and dismiss the whole thing. And you have a judge who's like, well, you know, I can be part of the the role of addressing society's ills, but I'm as going I to- As I see them. As, as I see them, <laughs> but I'm going to go and do it this way, which as opposed to doing it that way. Mm. That's what I see. I see that it's, you know, we talk about it as a system with a lot of gears, you know, mechanically grinding, but it's really a lot of people, you know, that are ended up making- very consequential decisions. Right. All right. Well, let's do what we do or what we used to do and what we're now doing again. And I'm just going to go around the horn and ask you all to give episode two of Serial Season 3, you've got a lot of galls, a letter grade. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What grade are you going to give this episode and why? I'm going to A with this one just because I was uh, really drawn into this. Uh, the story of Judge Gall was an important one to get out there. It was well told. There was some really interesting cases that illustrated just how fucked up this was. And it made me want to hear more. What about you, Toby Ball? Letter grade for episode two of Serial Season 3. You've got a lot of galls. You know, I've got I've got sort of mixed feelings. So I guess I'll give it like an A- because mm-hmm. I think it was a good episode. I kind of wonder where we're going with the whole series and how the first two kind of relate to what we're seeing as a whole. But I guess it's not really fair to dock it on something I don't know about. Mm-hmm. So I'm also going to go with an A. Um, I was going to go, you know, maybe A minus B plus. I thought the first episode was so strong, uh, but there is a little tiny moment, and if you'll just indulge me for a second in this episode, that for me, just as Tan would say on Queer Eye, elevates it. Mm-hmm. Can you see me one second? Back in his office, Judge Gall's got souvenirs from Ireland. A lot of the judges have Ireland stuff in their chambers. He's also got one of those putter things. Hi. There are a lot of golf balls. Yeah, well, <laughs> you want That'd be funny if I had a slip and fall case from yeah, your golf balls. Have to get a visiting the fact that Sarah Koenig can do this kind of reporting and, uh, and this team can do this sort of comprehensive look at the criminal justice system and still do the kind of storytelling where they're cultivating relationships, they're going into the houses of these judges that they aren't looking at and, and being kind to. They're looking at them pretty objectively and showing their stories. They're really good at what they do, and I think this episode just was really emblematic of that and a great example of that. So that little tiny moment for me elevated it right back up to an A. What about you, Kevin? Yeah, again, Professor Flynn would grade this. Uh, this is a group project. You know, <laughs> it's not all Sarah's work. But, uh, I, I, again, I would give it an A. I mm. mean, I think it's it, you're turning in quality work. It's, a again, in and of itself, this single episode is is uh, really compelling. Um, is it going to change the course of Judge Gall's professional career? Hope so. Maybe, maybe not. But again, it, it's an interesting look at um, the power of judges writ small. Yeah. And I mean, here's a judge who just always seems to have 
his undies in a bunch. Yep. And he's obviously not wearing Tommy John because you know <laughs> those do not ride up. Happen. Would not absolutely would not happen. But a hey, great news from Tommy John though. In addition to having the most comfortable underwear on the planet, we got a little something new. What's that? They've been revolutionizing judge robes. <laughs> Men's dress shirts. Nice. Yeah, after six Ooh, you years. Love a good dress yeah, shirt. of six years and two hundred different wear tested prototypes, Tommy John has perfected the stay tucked dress shirt. Oh, and it's truly unlike anything guys have experienced. <laughs> if I know you, you're going to be ordering one of those immediately after we stop taping the show. What do you mean after? You love a good dress shirt. Yeah, yeah, and you know it's like always. Uh, you stand up, you sit down. It's when you start like you get yourself nice and. Dressed, and I don't know. I mean, maybe if uh, it's body type, maybe plan a little bit. Body of that. type, you know, it may not look, you know, around the middle there might not fit so nice. You, you bunch up on the the sides. You don't always look great. This uh, stay tucked dress shirt uses Invisigrip snap technology, so you don't have to worry about any billowing or bunching. It's got a 360 degree underarm stretch panel for full range of motion. So wow! You know, like pull it out. Yeah, it's, they really thought this through. You, you can stretch or twist, or you even could like, you know. Stick that carry-on in the, yeah. the upper band. Yeah, and not feel weird when you're like, if a scent you were seeing, you got to tuck everything back yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, or even change like, you know, that big water bottle and the, you know, and yeah. the, the bubbler. And yeah, the, yeah you, you look great. Upgrade today with Tommy John. No adjustment needed. Go to TommyJohn.com slash crime, crime to save 20% off your first order plus free shipping and free returns on all dress shirt purchases. That's TommyJohn.com slash crime, crime for 20% off. TommyJohn.com. What else you got, Kevin? Well, everybody has that friend who hypes up their bottles of wine, but when you actually try it, you want to say, you paid how much for that bottle? Yeah. There is a better way. There is. To get good wine, to find stuff that you like. You go to First Leaf. They have a club experience customized to you on an individual level. So you will rate the wines that you receive, Mm -hmm. and then First Leaf will determine your likes and dislikes. They're using a custom algorithm. It's algorithmic. Algorithmic. Science. Uh, (laughs) Math. (laughs) Technically, it's math. Technically, it's math. Okay. (laughs) Well, they're using their math brains and their discerning wine palettes, and they're coming up with the wines that you will love. So get started with First Leaf by answering just three quick questions Mm -hmm. about your wine drinking preferences. For Laura, they're yes. Yes. Yes yes. and yes. For for, for me, me they're more, 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 and more. more. (laughs) They're going to create an introductory three-pack of wines based on your flavor profile, and then those three bottles, it's just $5 for each of those bottles. Mm. And these are like $20 bottles of wine. Oh my God, it's like cheaper than gas station wine. (laughs) But it's actually good wine but it's great wine okay all right and uh you know whatever if you don't like it you can send it back they guarantee you're gonna like the wine and they're gonna start based on the things that you like and all the ratings that you give the better stuff gonna give you more things that you should like now you're gonna sign up with our crime writers on link and you'll get an exclusive introductory offer it's those three bottles of wine for only 15 dollars mm-hmm. plus you get free shipping yep and if you rate these three wines, you're going to get an extra $10 off your next box. Oh, I'm doing this as soon as we stop recording. What is the Crime Writers on Link, Kevin? Well, you go to tryfirstleaf.com slash crime. You want to try First Leaf? Uh-huh. Then you go to tryfirstleaf.com slash crime. Crime. What else you got, Kevin? I've been wanting to tell you guys about this for a very long time. I'm very excited because Felix Gray now has prescription lenses. It's about time, Felix Gray. Felix Gray glasses filter out 90% of high-energy blue light and eliminate the glare coming off of all those screens so you can live your life without tired, dry eyes, blurry vision, headaches. We're all in front of a computer. 
We're all doing stuff. You can get non-prescription, prescription lenses. You get readers, all with free shipping and free returns. You've really got nothing to lose. Don't go another day looking at screens without the help of some Felix Grays. Go mm. to felixgrayglasses.com slash crime to protect your peepers today. <laughs> That's felixgrayglasses.com slash crime. Crime. I knew about these like a long time ago. You said like, peepers. I know. I'm just reading what they said. <laughs> I so can cute. read it because these are also prescription lenses, That's Rebecca. Right. That's right. felixgrayglasses.com slash crime. Crime. Good for your peepers. Kevin, thank you for that outstanding ad break. Before we continue on with the show, can you, I'll just give you 20 seconds to make a great plug. Go ahead. Go. Again, this year, I'm uh, participating in the Walkathon around here that's going to raise money for our local Women's Crisis Center. It's called Walk a Mile in Her Shoes, and I will be doing this Walkathon wearing high-heeled shoes, and it is very painful for my feet. And a lot of you guys helped last year by donating uh, to the cause, and if you do, I will send you a photo of me in my high heel shoes. We're going to put a link on uh, the homepage at crimewriterson.com. Why don't you put a link right in the show notes? Wouldn't that be easy? I'll do that too. Now it's time for my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, the of the week. And man, did I lobby hard for this one. Did I not, Kevin? You did. It happened <laughs> in New Hampshire. A juvenile minky whale very sadly beached itself and died on a popular beach this week. This was an unusual occurrence, and the public works crew wanted to remove the carcass and bring it to scientists who'd perform a necropsy. The biologist suggested they move the whale in a dumpster. They just didn't specify what size dumpster. A town worker drove up with a forklift, attempted to put the 17-foot-long whale in an 8-foot-wide dumpster, (laughs) while one of our favorite local reporters (laughs) videotaped it. The great mammal basically rolled and bounced and landed with a flop to the horror of everyone watching. While the recent spate of dying whales in North Atlantic is serious and tragic, this crew's lack of spatial relations has made this video viral. Now listen, animal lovers out there, I know it sounds like we're making fun of a dead whale, and I am very sad for the dead whale, but this video... It's unbelievably funny. Um, it's, it's kind of mesmerizing. It is. And I have a clever question. I'm not going to ask it. I just want to know, like, Laura, what the hell did they think was going to happen when they, when they tried to put this giant whale on the side? think it would fold in the middle? <laughs> I have no idea. Like, if they thought that they could tip the bucket sideways and slide <laughs> it in. But remember that game when we all, when our kids were little and there was a game where you had the little blocks that were the certain shape and you put them in the little <laughs> yeah. thing in the center and they went in. I mean, clearly they missed that game. Whoever, you know, <laughs> set this whole oh. thing up. But I just have to, I mean, I don't know what they thought was going to happen. Um, my friend Jason Schreiber made the video and I think, um, you know, if this was our crime of the week, the crime of the week is his video has gone viral and all of these like international news agencies have basically taken his video and refused to pay him for it. Uh, so. Well, he did put it on Twitter, so, you know. He did, so it's public. <laughs> but uh, it's it's TMZ is doing something on it, which is crazy. It is crazy. You know, Jason Schreiber, we should say, shout out to our friend, local reporter Jason Schreiber, 
probably the local reporter who has gone viral the most times of any New Hampshire reporter. He's I also still the love one the other one who took the amazing gorilla at the fire of uh, fire, fire photo. Yeah, <laughs> a fire crew at an active fire, and a guy in a gorilla suit just came and stood there watching. And the caption guy, of the photo was "So and so watched the fire in a gorilla suit." In a gorilla suit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Jason is like a good reporter, we should say. He just happens yeah. to capture all these amazing things. So, Toby, um, what the hell do you think these guys thought would happen when they tried to put this gigantic whale into this little teeny dumpster? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> do you think they had a plan B? They probably couldn't find a toilet that was big enough to flush it down. <laughs> that was so nice. <laughs> uh. Plan B. <laughs> Well, we should probably end it on that note, Kevin. Anything to add? Should. Yeah, I think that the best story that I have ever, ever seen, and I'm not being hyperbolic, was the story about the crew that tried to get rid of the whale by blowing it up oh, with dynamite. Yes. Oh, yes. And oh. giant chunks of whale came down. <laughs> it started crushing cars, and people were running for their lives. And. Oh. And I am not, and I will tell the story someday. But somebody showed me that at a conference, and that's when I said, "I want to get out of radio and go into television." Yes. All right. Well, Kevin, can you please post a video to Jason Schreiber's whale video to our show notes, and we will not pay him for that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sucker. We can be added to the it's list okay. of people who did not pay Jason Schreiber for his video. Uh, I'm a dress shirt. All right, Laura. Before we wrap up the show, do we have a cat of the week this week? We have a dog of the week per yes! request from Rebecca. We need more dogs. We do. Okay, so Sarah Baltensberger, she she sent a nice picture and she says, "Meet Phoebe, your favorite twelve week mini golden doodle, nice. also your future dog of the week." Disclaimer: I may or may not have gotten my first pet at age thirty five partially to have a shot at this honor. <laughs> Phoebe loves to eat dry erase markers, crayons, and wicker ottomans. She also loves listening to Crime Writers On With Me. She got so excited one morning while listening, she grabbed the end of the toilet paper and ran around the room. Uh. <laughs> sounds like a puppy. So there you go, That Phoebe. sounds like a perfect dog of the week. I love it. Yeah. Laura yeah. Bricker, people want to get in touch with you besides emailing crimewriterson at gmail.com. How can they find you on Twitter? to submit their cats slash dogs for Cat of the Week. At Laura Bricker. And tell me, Bob, people want to get in touch with you to praise you for your plan B for getting rid of that minky whale off of Genis Beach in New Hampshire. How can they find you on Twitter? If you want to get in touch with me like uh, Mary Michael just did and said, Toby, please talk about how Gaul sounds like the Michael Scott of judges. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can reach me at NH. And Kevin Flint, who want to reach out to you online, how can they? I'm at Kevin P. Flint. And I just want to say, I did hear from a tweeter this week at my Twitter account, at Reb Lavoie. I heard from Michal, whose question I did not use this week. It had to do with a lot of the race stuff and reporter stuff that we talked about. But I just wanted to give you a shout out for DMing me a, like a really interesting thought about the podcast. And I do welcome you to follow me on Twitter and send me your ideas for the show. You can find me at Reb Lavoie. Our show is on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular Facebook page. Just search for us on Facebook, find our regular page. You can hang out there or find the link there to the group. 
Go to our website, sign up for our newsletter. We've been sending out a whole bunch of those lately. You can support the show on Patreon and you will get access to the Balls Deep Dive Book Club podcast out right now. The discussion on the fact of a body featuring Laura and Rabia Chaudhry. You can also get a free month of Stitcher Premium if you go to stitcherpremium.com slash crime and use the code crime. When you join, you'll get access to Married with Podcast, the show on which Kevin and I dispense advice on all kinds of things, including relationships. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we make awkward conversation while riding down the elevator. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. Who punched a cop while fighting off a crowd. Wait, you deleted everything I wrote here. No. Yeah, I had a whole thing there about dropping tape. I didn't oh, touch oh, it. Oh, never mind. Never mind. Sorry. Sorry. See, I get Never blamed mind. for sorry, shit that sorry, doesn't sorry, sorry, happen, sorry, sorry, people. Sorry. Later, move just move back. In a sense, it's a misdemeanor, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got a question. Yes. For the ladies. Yes. For the ladies. Okay. We, will, we will not join Nexium with you, Toby. Oh, fuck. All right, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Partners in Crime, crime Media. media. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.